we get to look at 1 Samuel chapter 11 today. Chapter 10 had finished as Saul was shown to the people, as lots were cast, that he was the one chosen to be the first king of Israel, and they found him hiding among the baggage, among the supplies. And most of the people responded, long live the king. But not all the people. There were some that really did not trust Saul, which was really not trusting God, that really despised Saul, didn't bring him any gifts, and questioned, how can this man be our leader? How can this man rule over us? How can he give us deliverance? And the chapter closed as Saul kept silent. He didn't say anything. Now, chapter 11, we're going to see really a major test comes to Saul as he is the king. And how is he going to respond? He chose initially to respond to those opposing him by saying nothing. And that's going to come back as these people are going to come up again in this chapter. And Saul will get an opportunity to address them as he deals with a different problem, a more national situation of what's affecting the people um, as far as their security. We begin reading 1 Samuel chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a, tw- make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. And so we have an enemy nation, the Ammonites. The Ammonites, enemy but not unfamiliar. Um, These Ammonites, we had seen them. They had caused problems during this period of judges that we are now leaving with Saul as king entering the monarchy, we had seen that uh, Jephthah, the judge, was one of the leaders that God raised up to deliver specifically from the Ammonites. Uh, An enemy, but not unfamiliar, the Ammonites are relatives to the Israelites. So many of these nations are. Um, Bad blood when you share blood. The Ammonites are descendants of Lot, from one of Lot's daughters. You can look at that account from Genesis 19 when after God delivers Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah with his two daughters, and then once again you look and see how God really still brings blessing out of sin that you have a case of incest between Lot and his daughters. But out of that comes Ammon and the Ammonites. And so we do have relatives here. Um, The Ammonites showed up as well when the Israelites were in the wilderness. They joined forces with with Moab and causing trouble and not letting the Israelites pass. They're familiar foes. Familiar foes. And here they are again, now going to cause problems. And so Nahash is the leader who comes and they've besieged it, all right? They've laid that siege around the city, Jabesh Gilead is kind of in a stuck position. Um, There's actually, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you're familiar with those, the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe perhaps better named the Dead Sea Scraps. Don't think that they're long scrolls that that were found. They're pieces, fragments, valuable still and beneficial. Um, From one of the scrolls, there's actually, in one of the texts for this, from 1 Samuel 11, additional information before verse 1 that was showing that Nahash was actually also terrorizing the tribe of Reuben and Manasseh, these other tribes 
on the east side of the Jordan. Remember when you hear Gilead, think east of the Jordan. Those three tribes that asked for land outside of the initial promised land boundaries that God granted to them. And so Gilead's east of the Jordan. That Nahash had been terrorizing and gouging out eyes of Israelites over there up to this point, leaving this there. Um, when you look at that, okay, well, these, the Dead Sea Scrolls, this manuscript has this. Well, why isn't it included here? Well, it's looking at textual evidence there. Why is it not? It seems likely from limited account and seems also very much from what it is that this was an additional comma added in to give explanation. When we look, okay, Scripture, don't let this now make you alarmed. Oh, no, do we have it right? Are we missing parts? Well, God promises that none of his word will pass away. We don't need to be fear there. But as all these were copied by hand, sometimes additional notes were grabbed and sometimes it didn't help understanding. Think about maybe you write in your Bible and you've taken down notes and shot things in the pages to help remember things. And sometimes accidentally those can all of a sudden, as you're copying down, get put into the text as we're not using computers to print. And then it's always, you know, looking as far as, as the widespread of manuscripts of what we have available and saying, oh, okay, well, no, from the timing, from these, this is what seems to be very clear. This is, as we have so many other records, this note wasn't here. Oh, well, look at it. Very likely this was just an additional comment. But beneficial, perhaps. Beneficial in that, you know, from the time when the Dead Sea Scrolls were there, that Jews understood and recognized from history, a lot of history was oral passing on, that, oh, Nahash didn't just come out of any, nowhere. He had been causing trouble. And we actually have something confirmed of that later in the next chapter as well from Samuel's words in chapter 12 as he points back to how Nahash had been causing problems and that was one of the reasons why Israel came asking for a king. And so we do have right within the word showing, okay, this is not just this came this day right after Saul became king. Nahash has been causing problems around. And, but now, now he's doing it in Jabesh Gilead. And that's significant. That's significant that God specifically shows us this issue as it comes after Saul is now king. Jabesh Gilead. This is maybe, this is maybe the daily double jeopardy question for 2,000, or double even more. Um, when have we recently studied and seen Jabesh Gilead? This might be really racking your minds now, having to think back. It's not a familiar one name, is it? It's one of those names that's so easy to just kind of gloss over. Jabesh Gilead. Okay. Oh, good. It was in Judges. It was in Judges. Yeah. In Judges. Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21. And I think it's good for us to already start thinking about that end of those end chapters of Judges as we see what's going to happen here and recognize that maybe, maybe Saul is a, a man of history. Maybe that was a particular interest of his or something he knew well as we see what he's going to do. And also just how he responds to the, what's happening. Jabesh Gilead shows up in Judges 21. Remember we had this issue of the Benjaminites um, were almost destroyed because, you know, this, it, like a lot of things, there's no usually simple backstories. <laughs> there's so many factors. And so we had that Levite who went with his concubine and then the city of Gibeah mistreated, that's an understatement, the mistreating the concubine, um, abused her sexually, physically, emotionally killed her. And then this Levite gets so upset 
Now, remember that Levite had marriage issues that he really, as he's being called concubine, not his wife, gets so upset all of a sudden now that he doesn't have his concubine. And what does he do? Do you remember? Cuts her up, yeah. Graphically cuts her up and sends pieces of her body to the 12 tribes to raise them up and say, this horrible deed has been done among us. Are you going to let that stand? And all the nations of, all the other tribes of Israel rise up and know this is a horrible thing. A thing like this has never been done before as far as ascending of body parts because of what tragedy is taking place. And they rise up and they're going to go and attack whom? The Benjaminites. Because Gibeah is a town in Benjamin and the Benjaminites didn't do anything about it. And so they go and attack them and what happens is that the men of Benjamin are almost completely wiped out. That there really is almost none left of this tribe and all of a sudden then it's Oh no, what's happened to our nation? These promises that God has attached to all of our tribes and we've almost lost one. We only have a few handful, a couple hundred Benjaminites left. We need to get them wives now so that they can continue, so they can grow. Well, where are we going to get wives? Because that's right, we made that vow that we would never give our wives to the Benjaminites because of what a horrible thing they've done. We would never do that. And so they called the council as far as what should we do and they decided, well, whoever didn't show up, whoever didn't send the proper representatives, they'll be the ones. We'll go and kill all the men for failing their responsibility of this town of uniting with the nation of Israel and those, the women, their wives, they can be given. And do you know what town it was that didn't show up? Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead didn't show up. So, you have to now connect the families there. Jabesh Gilead. Who makes up this town? Jabesh Gilead, east side of the Jordan. East side of the Jordan. The wives are from Jabesh Gilead, initially. They are given to Benjamin men. Benjamin, the tribe, is in the promised land, specific boundaries. Um, It's near Judah. It's further to the south than where Jabesh Gilead is, east and to the north. But you recognize now this town really has Benjamin blood in it. That's important. That's important then as we continue on Let's look here now. So as Naash is coming, and Jabesh Gilead is the one that's being sieged here, and they say, make a treaty with us. That's nothing new as far as an Israelite tactic. They were doing that the whole time. They were doing that when they weren't threatened. They were doing that when they came in after Joshua led them in, and by God's command, Joshua told them, you are to annihilate but yet they kept making treaties with people instead. And so now, oh, let's make a treaty. That seemed to work for us in the past. But the terms of the treaty don't sound too good. The terms of the treaty don't sound too good, especially when it seems likely from then these other historical information that that's what Nahash was doing anyways, the people. That this really wasn't a, oh, okay, I'll make a deal with you. Here's the deal. We do it my way, and you listen, and you obey, and you are disgraced. Not a great treaty. Not a great treaty, especially since you're going to lose an eye with it as well. I mean, I guess you could argue and say losing an eye is better than losing your life, but probably not something we'd be quickly to say, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Something that you, they ask for seven days. Okay, give us a week to think about it. Give us a week to think about it. And everyone knew what was going on here. 
I mean, they even say it. They even say, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, then we'll surrender. Give us seven days, see if we can get some help. How silly this even kind of sounds. Like this does not, would not work as far as diplomacy today. An enemy nation is coming and saying, I'm gonna t- we're going to take over. Oh, hold on. Give us seven days and see if anyone wants to help us. No, but there perhaps you see the arrogance of Nahash and thinking, you know, I've been terrorizing Israel already. Seven days. Okay, fine. Do what you want. It's not going to make a difference. Not going to make a difference here. So they have seven days. What do they do? Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. Jabesh Gilead is to the northeast of Gibeah, east of the Jordan. Gibeah is on the west side of the Jordan. Why did the messengers go here? Why did the messengers? This is not by any means the closest town of Israel to go seek rescue from. Well, remember that family connection. They're going and asking family to help because this is, you have Benjamin men that have now married those women from Jabesh Gilead. And so there's that blood connection, Gibeah, a town in Benjamin. And so who do you turn to for help? You turn to family first and go ask. And notably, who else is from the family of Benjamin? Saul. Saul. Listed here, Gibeah of Saul. This is where Saul's from. Saul is related to these people of Jabesh Gilead. What's striking to you, though, about what we see Saul is doing? Saul is working in the fields. What are you doing, Saul? You're king. Why are you in the fields? Just as if it never even happened out there. Shouldn't you be going to Jerusalem, setting up a palace? At least, you know, getting other officials and appointing? You're supposed to be ruling and leading the people. Perhaps there's two different ways you could look at this and see, no, maybe this is once again displaying humility of Saul. That, okay, I'm king, but I'm no better than anyone else. And so I'm going to go and, you know, I'll keep working in the fields. Humility of, I'm not sure I'm really quite up for this task yet, so I'm not just going to steamroll my way into Jerusalem and say, all right, here we go. Maybe taking some time to get started. Perhaps it's also maybe, you know, could say, well, is he neglecting duties here? And that's, I suppose, another view of it. Either way, we do see that Saul really isn't all of a sudden stepping and saying, I'm going to now take control. There could be a positive of that. There could be a negative. But God has now allowed a situation to let Saul lead to let Saul now stand in this position to really establish his rule. Question, please. Maybe since he's the first king, he doesn't really know what the king's doing. Yeah, and that's a good point there, too. Maybe because he's the first king, he doesn't really know what to do. Yeah, and really what does the rest of the nation know as far as what he's going to do? They're all kind of figuring it out together. That's, I mean, that's true. Anytime, you, okay, a person's now stepping into a role, you're figuring it out because you haven't done it before, but especially when no one's experienced that in that way. They've always just been watching. Oh, this is what kings do. But we actually haven't had one yet. you got to figure it out. And so he hears that report. He hears the report. And how do you 
think Saul is going to react. That's now that this report from what the men of Jabesh Gilead said, that's family over there, that they are besieged by Nahash the Ammonite, knowing that Nahash has been causing lots of problems, gouging out eyes, perhaps, among others. How do you think Saul is going to react? Remember, he is the anointed king. People are going to be wondering and watching how he reacts. Verse 6. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. How does Saul respond? It's okay, he gets all the people together. How else does he respond? He's angry. He's angry. Would you be angry? And you think of different levels there, too. Okay, the ang- recognizing that here he is king and his people are in danger. That's a reason for him to be upset. But then knowing it's, okay, people that he has a close connection to. You can understand the emotions even greater. You look at this anger, but you also cannot overlook what God says here. The spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Is Saul right to be angry? Absolutely he is. He is right to be angry here. God really, you see, is filling him, and that's the response that comes. He's burning with anger because innocent people, not innocent because they're not sinful, but people who had not provoked Nahash, God's people, maybe that's just in and of itself, recognizing these are God's people. And when God's people are in danger, God is not happy by that. God does not take light, delight in his people being oppressed. Does God sometimes allow it? Yes. We read the book of Judges. And he has a purpose and his goodwill and wisdom for it. But he does not take delight in his people being oppressed. And so Saul, the Spirit of God coming powerfully upon him, is angry by this. Are there times where it's right for us to be angry? Perhaps this kind of brings in that topic of righteous anger. Maybe the notable one is obviously Jesus, who, without sin, could not be sinning when he got angry, but okay, you see him clearing the temple. Righteous anger. Are there times where it's right for us to be angry? There are things that was God-pleasing for us to be angry at. We should be angry at sin. We should be angry at when people are being oppressed because of sin and in danger. That, those things should anger us. Now, we always then have to look and say, okay, make sure our anger remains in line with God's will. Make sure it's not because of some selfish motive that we have. And that's where our struggle most often really is, to recognize there's usually so many different thoughts and filling our hearts. And as we are not perfect, not even close, as we are corrupted by sin, there's probably also sinful thoughts that are entering. And so is our anger ever, ever truly righteous? No, we're stained by sin. But there are things that are right for us to be angry at. Now, always be careful then, okay, how do we re- react in that anger? 
That doesn't mean we just go out and do things either. I saw some hands going up. Let's. It, it, you know, as, as you're saying there too, that we recognize that if our anger we find, okay, there is sin that is coming in that anger, or really maybe the anger in and of itself was just sin because it wasn't, it wasn't really in line with what God wanted. Or perhaps even we were getting angry at God because that's not what you see Saul doing here. He's not angry at God for this. Um, okay, we repent in that. I saw another hand, please. Yeah, then maybe that's really the thing. Angry when the people are going against God's will and things. Yeah, that's a good one mentioned there as far as abortion. Can we get angry at abortion? Yeah, that should not be, we should not have a neutral disposition towards that. We should not, certainly not be happy about that because that is against God's will of taking lives. But it's not neutral either. We should be upset by it. Now, okay, recognize there. Now, make sure that our anger and then kind of any actions that would flow out of it always stay in line with God's will about it. It does not, just because it's someone's doing something against God's will does not now then give us license to go outside of God's will either in reacting. But here Saul's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. Spirit of God coming upon him, he's burning with anger. What does he do? What does he do? And this is where perhaps maybe, maybe Saul is a man of history. Maybe he knows what's happened in the past well because he cuts oxen into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel. He dismembers Body parts, not of a person, but of cattle, and sends them to each tribe. And it's in response to something we've got going on. Saul of Gibeah, that was the town where this had happened in the past, we read in Judges. And Jabesh Gilead's going to be involved too. And so he sends, and what had happened after when that Levite had first done it? Well, all of Israel gathered around to support. Perhaps Saul is a man of history, recognizing this brought the people together in the past. It sent a very strong message. And you know what? It'll work in a similar way again. Now, he includes a threat there as well that essentially anyone who does not follow their oxen will be cut. Not a threat of death by any means. And that's notable. That's not the tone that Saul is setting for his rule. It's not saying, obey me or die. No. But there are consequences if you do not rally behind your king. I am your king. I am to lead you. That's the position I have to bring you deliverance. And that's what we're seeking to do here, to bring part of our nation deliverance. And notably, he says, who does not follow not just Saul, but does not follow Saul and Samuel. What message is Saul sending by adding Samuel here? Good. Sam is a man of God. It's not just Saul's idea, but this is, this is walking in line with God. This is what's going to be doing God's will now, doing this. Samuel's a man of God, and so we're following his way by seeking to deliver his people. The next words there, it says, then the terror of the Lord, probably better, right with the word there, the fear of the Lord. The terror... Yeah, even when we hear it with the word fear, we recognize there, okay, it can be fear and afraid, but fear also can just, is the reverence and respect, and that's that term that really flows throughout Scripture so much. And certainly with our sins, there is the being afraid, but the awe of God. And that's what's probably better here to think. It's not, oh no, they were afraid that God was going to do something to them. It was the respect and awe, respect as this is God's, appointed, anointed king. And so 
moved by following God, they came out together, and we get 300,000 from Israel and 30,000 from Judah. I thought we were one nation. I thought we were one nation. Why, why 300,000 listed from Israel and 30,000 from Judah? The divided kingdom won't happen until after Solomon. We just started the monarchy. Well, remember, this is not just an account of history that God gives here. As God recording it, he is also proclaiming a message, indicating here too, take it in light of all of what he proclaims. He's already showing here, as it's being you know, recorded later, the fact, but pointing ahead, this kingdom, it's going to be divided. Already, just take note, you've got Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Not that they were not united now as they come together in this, but this nation is not going to last as Saul is leading them. Please. Uh, yeah, could it be it was written? It was, would have been written for sure after that. And I think that's where we find the emphasis, the note. It's not just being recorded as it happened, like as if you're experiencing it all for the first time. It's being notably, notably shown, yes, as we're now in a divided kingdom as this was recorded, we don't want to forget that, even as we read about what happened in the past, that this is where things are headed. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It definitely would have been, was recorded after, as far as the division here. Here's an indication, one indication, and there are others of that as well. Yes, please. Without having front, I could not for sure tell you, I'm, but I'm pretty sure it's a different word because I, mainly I don't remember what the word was for the hornet. And this is the general word when God says, fear the Lord. It is the very basic word, fear. Fear. Um, you think about, you know, as we think, we should fear and love God. Okay, that's drawing from there. This is that concept. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Same kind of word. So this is the general word that we see so often for fear. And I'm pretty sure the hornet is a unique word. And that's why, without seeing, I can't give you 100%, but fairly confident it is a different one. A good, good thought, though, because we did see that coming around as far as it was with that, the hornet, yeah, that terror coming. Any other questions? Please. Um, so a question here as far as that separation, yeah, as far as the, how we have Israel and Judah separated, that Judah ends up being the nation that will come through as Israel those 10 tribes are off to captivity, never to come back as a nation. But yet later, God talks about Israel as his people. And you see, really, that's the restoration. Okay, all of God's people, Israel. Probably what's most notable here is that God is inspiring his author to write and show that already kind of previewing, giving a little hint going as ahead of where we're going. But reality is when this happened, Saul wasn't dividing them. If you're trying to put in real time when this took place, they mustered, it would have been, oh, Saul mustered them and there were 330,000 people from the nation. But yet God is also then showing us here, 300 from the nation, 30 from Judah, there is a division here that's going to take place. Not a division then when it comes to salvation, as he talks later about Israel and all of Israel. Then he's once again saying, the division is complete. Well, why does the division come? It comes because of sin. God restores sin because from what's been damaged from sin because he takes away sin. And so that's why you see later talking about Israel as a whole again. Other questions or comments? Let's continue on then. So it's been sent, the message sent, they've got the troops. Verse 9, they told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. 
when the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. So report comes from Saul, from the people saying, by tomorrow, by the time sun's hot, midday, you'll be delivered. Before midday, you'll be delivered. And of course, they're elated. Who wouldn't be in that situation that you heard the good news of rescue and relief and it, they didn't doubt it? And there's evidence. They didn't doubt it. They didn't, it wasn't, okay, well, you know, let's just sit tight. Let's play it safe here. Let's, you know, keep all our options open. No, it was complete trust. You know, this is what the message coming from our king, he's going to deliver us. So much that they tell the Ammonites, we'll surrender tomorrow. They're not foolish enough to say, oh, well, you know, you gave us seven days, I think we're okay. They came through for us. Seven days, see if someone rescues us. You know what? I don't know. It doesn't say which day exactly. Uh, Day five, yeah, they said they're going to be here by tomorrow, so that's within the seven days, we're okay, you can go away now. No, they're smarter than that. They essentially now have tricked Nahash and the Ammonites because they've got them off their game and told them, all right, we'll surrender to you tomorrow. And of course, as Nahash was probably so bold and arrogant to think, yep, you weren't going to get any support, sure, of course you're going to surrender now. But boy, was he wrong. Verse 11, the next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul does not waste any time. They go and travel during the night to get there while it's still dark, to take them by surprise. Naash and his army sleeping, thinking that tomorrow they will have a peaceful surrender, but instead they are slaughtered. Questions or comments here? We see the descriptions that kind of show the extent of which Saul is delivering the people by destroying them, that no two of them are left together, completely scattered, There is no threat here anymore. They've dispersed, and so many are slaughtered because the slaughtering goes all the way to the heat of the day. That's so much much of Naash's army is now being destroyed, put to death. Saul has stepped up now. It was a crisis, wasn't it? That all of a sudden you have a town that really is being threatened by an an enemy that's really been causing problems. And Saul steps up, not just to deliver them, but to rally the nation behind them. And what has he done? He has done what God really said a king would do. A king would protect them, that this king he would give would offer protection and deliverance from enemies. He has set the tone really early on. Now, was Saul seeking it out, this opportunity to set the tone? Well, he was out in the fields. Maybe not. But God used really what, I'd say, how is it good that there's an enemy nation coming? In a similar way as how he'd raised up judges. You see that oppression coming and then God raised up a leader. God had already anointed Saul, told him this, to be the king, and now he gave him the occasion to lead to be that king. Where do we go from here? Verse 12. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, So shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today. For this day the Lord has rescued Israel. So all of a sudden now, as you see Saul, this is the first really major milestone of his reign, the first time he's being challenged in any way 
by others around, by nations, you see Saul come through. Oh, yeah, he is a good leader, isn't he? He has brought protection. He's brought deliverance. What? There were people that were questioning him, weren't there? How dare they? People who have refused to bring gifts to Saul, who oppose him, who don't stand behind him as king. They should be punished. How quickly the human mind goes to revenge. That they had opposed and now they should receive some sort of consequence for it. Saying that those people should be put to death because they essentially were not giving their allegiance to the king before this. And he is a good leader. Um, maybe notably, they didn't say this, the people weren't saying this before this event happened. <laughs> no one was saying after these men showed up and didn't give gifts and despise them, oh, let's put these men to death right now. They didn't say that then. They're saying it now after Saul has shown his power, has shown that he, yes, is a worthy king. But now it's ready to say, okay, get rid of them. And that really would have been of the natural way that other nations would have done it. It's what they would have seen from other nations that, oh, what do you do to public enemies? You put them to death. You get rid of them. Even when it's within your own nation, any threats to the throne you eliminate. But what does Saul do? Saul is still setting the tone for his reign. This is how Saul is going to rule from the start. This is what he's saying in message he's sending to Israel. He says, no one will be put to death today. Is that true? Mostly. I mean, however many Ammonites had already been put to death today. But, returning to Israelites, no one of our people will be put to death today. For this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Because really, as these other people come saying that those who oppose Saul should be put to death, what are they doing? They're lifting up Saul now. Look, Saul has given us great military victory. Long live the king! And put the other ones to death. But what does Saul do? He does not lift up himself. He gives his credit to the Lord. And that's setting the tone. It's setting the tone this day the Lord has rescued Israel. He does not say, look at my great military tactic. Look at what a wonderful idea it was to cut the oxen into pieces, to raise you all up with my charisma on this. No. He doesn't say, that sneak attack in the middle of the night, that's what saved us. He says, this day the Lord has rescued Israel. The Lord who anointed me king, that I am king ruling over his inheritance. The people who are the Lord, we're not putting anyone to death today because these are the Lord's people. The Lord who is the covenant God, who a covenant of forgiveness. Yes, they opposed me. But they are the Lord's inheritance, even in good times, just as in bad. And so it's not now that we're going to turn on them. Questions or comments here? Last two verses then of the chapter, verses 14 and 15. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. All of a sudden Samuel shows up. Not that he hasn't been around or involved. I mean, we had seen Saul emphasizing to follow Saul and Samuel, which just suggests that Samuel is there as well as the man of God, as God's mouthpiece. Samuel says, 
Let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingship. Why renew it? Why renew it? I don't think that he had a public recognition of it before that. Good. Yeah, what kind of public recognition did he have before it? Now, if you remember looking back from last chapter, and maybe walk through the steps of how Saul is made king. First, the Lord reveals it to Samuel. Then Samuel anoints Saul privately. Then they gather, Saul gathers them all at Mizpah, and they cast lots to see who is chosen, who is chosen for this, and Lot falls to Saul. And remember, they inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said he's hiding among the baggage of supplies. So it's not as if, okay, the Lord wasn't involved or present, but as far as being chosen, and they lifted up, long live the king, but Samuel then only explained what the king was going to do. They did not have this, yeah, public recognition of, all right, let's celebrate and rejoice and he is the king. Give our praise to God for he is the king. Nothing like that is described up to this point. Mentions there as far as renewing the kingship. Not that he wasn't king before this. He was already anointed. Anointed before they even knew it. He's already then publicly chosen by God. But now we're going to renew it after God has, you know, declared it and given evidence to it in the victory through him leading it. Renew it now as well with the whole nation behind it. They go to Gilgal. Significant maybe about that, that this is the place where they're going to do it in public presence of the Lord. Um, Historically, Gilgal was a spot that the nation of Israel had gathered after they crossed the Jordan to come into the promised land the first time, and it's where they all were circumcised, the ones who had wandered in the wilderness. And so really you have kind of a renewing of a covenant happening there at Gilgal, a momentous occasion for the nation then as, all right, God has given you the promised land. Here it is. You are his covenant people. Now, come to Gilgal. Doing the Here is the king that God has given you. Let us rejoice. A great celebration. It's worthy to gather together to celebrate the great things that God has done, to renew them at times, to not just, okay, we have these, and yep, we celebrate it once, but to continually celebrate what the Lord gives. They offer the sacrifices of fellowship offerings. Those are expressing their unity as God's people with God. Fellowship, that sharing. And so this is where the chapter comes now to a close. God has given the occasion of Saul to really be able to step into this position. After anointing, after choosing, he gives Saul the opportunity to now lead in a very striking way. And Saul sets the tone saying, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Perhaps that then leads us to look and say, are there crises in our lives? Because it was this. It was a disaster. You wouldn't have said, oh, okay, we have a king now. All right, we got a king to protect us from enemy nations. Okay, who, what enemy nation wants to come attack us now so we can fight and use our king? That, that seems foolish. Just like it would be foolish to say, all right, Lord, send a lot of problems into my life so that you can use them for good. Oh, he will, but we don't ask for bad things to happen upon us. Yet, how does God do it? And that's something then to ponder. In what ways does God use the crises to actually then as opportunities for us to really do what he's asked of us? You mentioned there too, is as their desire and they're asking for a king. Remember, God is always their king. And so God still blesses the king. Here he's showing how he is blessing them, even though, okay, their requests came out of selfish, sinful motives. But how he still then blesses this reign and blesses it in that way that now he's delivering them and now he's unifying them. 
the comment there, the, the reign of Saul doesn't last long. Yeah, it lasts about 40 years, which is not really a long time as far as that. And even then the kingdom as a whole after that, before divides, before we already have the hint of that with Israel and Judah. But we do just see that even in things that seem bad, even as pointed out too, sometimes when we seek bad things, God still blesses. And so maybe that's the thing to try to think about. Especially, you know, looking at Pat, this past, you know, whether it's year or months, recognizing that it's not just the crises of a pandemic or turmoil in our nation, but there's personal ones that come. That sometimes God uses them, okay, to really rally his people behind them, behind him through the crisis. That's what happened here. As he used it to let his servant Saul serve and to accomplish the purpose, to unite his people and unite them not just, oh, here they are behind Saul. No, the Lord has rescued us. May that is what we ask that God will always do through everything in our lives, that he use the success and the suffering to unite us around him. Let's close with prayer. Lord, you are the one who brings rescue. You are the one who brings deliverance. You know what things are giving us struggles in our lives. And we ask for your deliverance, for your rescue. May you bring that to us through the form of your people. Through using your power, may you bring us deliverance even when it's not the deliverance we think we need. A deliverance of turning and simply trusting in you and what you've given to us in your love, what you've given to us in the grace through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.